I want to remind you that the idea of politics and government raises some very old questions, questions much older than our nation. And the idea that the world would be polarized as our society has grown more and more polarized, I want to remind you it's not the first time that that has happened. And it is helpful for us as disciples of Jesus to zoom out a little bit of the political moment in which we live and remember Jesus' perspective. And that's what I want to do for a few minutes this morning because Jesus also answered some of the hot political issues of his day. In fact, the political hot potato was put in his lap. Jesus, what are you going to do about paying taxes to Caesar? In verse 17, tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? In the text, Matthew tells us back in verse 15 that they're trying to entangle him in his words. He says in verse 18, they're trying to put me to the test. But why would that be? Why is asking about paying taxes such a difficult question? Well, thank you for asking. The reason it's such a difficult question in this text, it actually unites two interesting and very disparate groups, the Pharisees and the Herodians. Now, the Pharisees would have opposed the Roman taxation. The idea of the Pharisee opposing Roman taxation, first of all, came from the fact that it was a foreign tax. Just imagine, if you would, that America was taken over by, let's say, China or Germany or some foreign power, and then we have to pay taxes. But we know that those taxes aren't going to Little Rock. They're not going to Washington. They're going to Berlin. They're going to Beijing. Now, it's hard enough to get people to pay taxes, right? We don't like paying taxes. That's our money, and we have to give it away. But then to pay taxes, and it goes somewhere far away to our foreign overlords. You can see how there would be some patriotic problems with that. Not only that, but if you look at the tax money, we'll talk more about this in a moment, but if you look at the tax money, it actually says the, the picture on is Tiberius Caesar, who is son of the divine Augustus. It says literally, this man is the son of God. Well, that's a problem for a Pharisee. And some people in the time of Jesus would take this position that we shouldn't support the Roman government to such an extreme that they became what was known as the zealots. They would lead regular revolutions at the time of raising taxes. So the Pharisees, they're asking the question, well, Jesus, do you support this or are you on our team? And of course, if Jesus comes out and supports not paying taxes, then that's a problem on its own. The Herodians, on the other hand, they supported the paying of taxes. They were Herod's men, and Herod was sort of an underling in the Roman government system. And they knew, just as everyone did in this time, that to fail to pay taxes and to encourage people to not pay taxes is a high-level crime to, to Rome and to the emperor. And so if Jesus says that, well, he's in trouble with the emperor. And more than that, you have the group of disciples around. And, and just outside all the political ramifications, the disciples are wondering, here is the master. What is he going to say that our responsibility and view toward government should be? So what does Jesus answer in such a loaded situation? Verse 18, but Jesus, aware of their malice, said, why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. And he said to them, therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And when they heard it, they marveled and they left him and went away. So Jesus asks for 
the coin. I have it here on the board. This is the coin. And on it, I don't know if those in the back can see it very well, on it is a, an image of Tiberius Caesar. And Jesus kind of plays dumb. He says, hey, who, who is that? I don't know who that is. Not everybody in the world knows who Caesar is. And they say, well, that's Caesar. He says, oh, okay. Well, why don't you give Caesar his coin back if he wants it? Pay Caesar what's his. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. If he has a, a coin with his face on it, then obviously it's his. He has incredible wealth and power. And if he demands his own coin back and you have it, give it to him. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. But it's also interesting that that's not the whole of the answer. In verse 21, therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. So he says... Just like Caesar has things and has control over them and you need to give him what is due him, so God has things that are under his control and that he expects and that are due him. And you give God what belongs to God as well. Now this is a very clever answer because in many ways he answers all the sides and their objections but without anything that's going to get him into trouble. On the other hand, he also corrects some of the misconceptions. He differentiates between the realm of Caesar and the realm of God. So there are things that are Caesar's and there are things that are God. Everybody needs to get their due. So he says, it is not that somehow by serving Caesar, you violate your service to God, nor is it somehow that when you serve Caesar, you're done serving God. Both of those need to be fulfilled. There are obligations in both directions. And so it does not violate our oath to God to serve Caesar, nor does it substitute for our oath to God to serve Caesar. And I want to take just a moment for our time this morning and to think through the implications of Jesus' idea that we render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And what I want to ask first is what is Caesar due? He says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Give him his due. And I want to ask just what is the government do from us? What is our responsibility toward government? And then we'll take some time asking the question, what does God do? So first of all, taxes are obviously, I mean, this is the, the obvious answer, the duh answer from the passage. They're asking him about questions, and Jesus essentially says, it is completely legitimate for Caesar to make demands of your money. If he wants to do that, he can. That is legitimate. You need to pay him what is his. And so he says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Now, that remains true even if we don't like Caesar, even if Caesar is corrupt, even if we don't like some of Caesar's decisions and political beliefs. There is still the right that Caesar has to demand what is his from us. So... He says, you pay Caesar what is his. This reminds me of when Israel in 1 Samuel chapter 8 asks for a king. And God tells Samuel, hey, you be sure and tell them what it's like to have a king. You know, the king is going to do what he wants. He's going to take your sons and daughters and he's going to make them his slaves. And he's going to build stuff. He's going to put them in the army. He's going to do whatever he wants. He will take and take and take because he is king and he has the right to do that. 
as long as he's king, you give the king what is due the king. And you might not like that. And I'm pretty sure that throughout history, no one has really liked that. I mean, taxes have never been super popular. And yet, that's still legitimate. And Jesus endorses that. I want you to turn me over to Romans 13. We're going to spend a few minutes over here in Romans 13. Because Paul has some things to say about Christians' relationship to government that connect to Jesus' statements about rendering to Caesar what is his. Romans 13, I want to begin in verse 1. We're going to read these first seven verses here. Romans 13 and verse 1, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. We're in Romans 13 and verse 2 now. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. So we're going to touch on some of the earlier parts of this passage in a minute, but I think you see verses 6 and 7 relate to the idea of taxes, right? And verse 6, he says specifically, you pay taxes because you are supporting a government whose role is to check evil and to administer justice. And they need to be able to do that. And you need to pay them so that they can make a living, even though their job is really about helping and blessing you. So you pay taxes. And in verse 17, um, verse 17, verse 7. Pay to all what is owed them. That word pay is Jesus' word render. Same word. You give them what is theirs. And it's almost like Paul understands what it would be like to live in Arkansas in 2020. He lists all the different taxes that have to be paid. You know, we have a lot of taxes in this state. In verse 7, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed. Those are different levels of taxes. He's saying you just pay them because that's what you should do to support the government. So... I don't really see this as a biblically controversial idea, but I do believe it is controversial politically, and I believe that we as Christians need to be reminded this is part of what Caesar is doing for us and therefore what he is due. Second, you have the idea of honor. You see that in verse 7. He says, not only pay taxes, pay revenue, but also respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. That there is a sense of honor that is given to and deserved by those who are in authority over us. And I want to remind you of this in 1 Peter 2. Uh, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. 1 Peter 2, 17. So honor the emperor, fear God, honor the emperor. And this sets a posture. Yes, Peter has a certain emperor in mind as he's writing. But whichever emperor is emperor, whichever ruler is ruler, Give them honor. They are due honor. They deserve honor. Please don't mistake that for the idea that we have some tremendous respect for every person who might be in government. And that because they're in government, we suddenly have respect for their personal life. We think they are geniuses. They always make the best decisions. They care about us more than anyone else. 
That's certainly not true. It was not true when Peter wrote these words. It wasn't true when Paul wrote these words. It wasn't true when Jesus said these words. It is not true today. The honor is not about some kind of personal morality and us validating that. Whether that's good or bad, there is still honor that is due. So I want to say this particularly. You guys have heard me say this before because I've been here long enough to have gone through multiple elections with you. But I believe it is important for Christians in our time to be careful in the sense of honor about the way that we talk about our elected officials. And I believe that I have seen this, and, and I, this is not a partisan statement because I have heard harsh things, in fact, things that, in my opinion, have crossed the line of what is honorable and respectful of government officials. I have heard them about President Clinton, about President Bush, about President Obama, and now about President Trump. I've heard them from everybody, but I've heard them from Christians. And to me, that is disturbing because it seems to me that we have forgotten this sense that while we always are free to criticize someone's immoral or moral choices, and we're always free to criticize someone's policies, that there seems to me to be a line that we easily cross where we begin to be personally insulting about different things about that person. We need to watch that because God tells us our role and responsibility is to honor. Please don't forget that these people lived under grossly immoral Caesars and emperors. Sometimes they were insane, as in the case of Nero, that's just my judgment, uh, and Caligula as well, and some of the other Roman emperors that were a little unmoored, and yet the expectation is that they honor their rulers. A third thing here is the idea of obedience. In Romans 13, this is really the heart of Romans 13. We're open here to Romans 13, but verse 1 let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. So let, let me take a time out with that verse. He says, be subject, submit yourself to them, obey them. And when he says those that are in authority have been appointed by God, please don't make that into saying that, that God is selecting each leader just the way he wants them, and that he therefore endorses every leader. That is not the idea. The idea is God has established government for our good, and whenever there's a government, God has established it for our good, to check evil and to bless those who are trying to live right. So down a little further in verse 4, Romans 13 and verse 4, for he is God's servant for your good. For if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. So the idea here is you do right and you obey the government for two reasons. For one, that's why the government is there, so that you can do right and escape punishment. So when we obey the government, we don't go to prison. But the other is, when we obey the government, we are respecting God and understanding that God has established government for these reasons. So we obey, and we, the, he is saying again, there is no conflict between obeying the government and obeying God. Peter says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. So same idea, but he also is talking about levels of government. You know, they're going to have a lot more contact maybe with a government or a local proconsul than they are with Caesar. They may never see Caesar, just like you and I may never see our president, but at the same time, we do deal with government. And we are gonna have those interactions. And he says, 
at every level, it should be filled with that respect and that willingness to obey. And the, third, the fourth thing, uh, let's go over to 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy 2. <clears throat> the fourth thing I want to say that Caesar is due from us, according to Scripture, is the idea of prayer. 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 1. 1 Timothy 2 and verse 1, he says, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So he says specifically different types of prayers. You see in verse 1, supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgivings, but specifically for kings and those who are in authority in verse 2. And the idea is we are asking God to use them, bless them, establish them, work through them so that we can, verse 2, lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and dignity. So if that is the goal, then we need to be willing to pray for our leaders. That's something that according to God, God says we need to have that perspective toward our government. That seems to me it's a good test of our heart. It's a good test of my heart just in everyday relationships to ask the question, can I pray for that person? Because you know, there are some people you feel like maybe you can't pray for. And when you feel that feeling, it's a sign that something is sick and that something needs to be moved past. Uh, Jesus tells us to pray for our enemies. And I think that's part of the, the discipline of that. Well, in the same way, I think it's a good test of our heart to say, can I pray for leaders when I completely disagree with them? When I really don't like them personally, when I really don't like their policies, when they have said and done things that I do not approve of, can I still pray for them? Because that's what he says. And remember, Timothy, Paul is not writing to Timothy during an era in which there were multiple choices about who you wanted to be Caesar, and oh no, your guy lost. It was this is who Caesar is, and nobody's asking you what you think. And yet, you pray for them that you can continue to have the way of life you have. Let's go back to Matthew 22. Matthew 22, and I want to catch the other side of Jesus' statement here. We're, we're going to look around in this chapter a little bit. Matthew 22 and verse 21 says, Therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. It seems to me important that Jesus says, not just let's talk about taxes, but that he wants to talk about our relationship to government and our relationship to God. Render to God the things that are God. So it raises the question for me, what is God due? And the first way I want to answer that question is to say that God is due allegiance. Allegiance. Let's turn, let's look a little further in the chapter. Verse 36 of Matthew 22. Matthew 22, 36. So a lawyer comes to Jesus and says, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Verse 37. And he said to, them, he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. So with all your heart, and all your soul, and all your mind, some versions include strength. This is the idea that God deserves our everything, our whole lives, our whole hearts, our whole devotion. I'm going to encapsulate that as allegiance. It includes obedience. Because after all, if I love God with everything I have, then I'm going to do what he says. And when he tells me to do something, I'm going to go do it with my heart and with my soul and with my mind and with my strength. I will use that to obey God. But wait a minute. 
if we're talking about obedience, didn't we already say that Caesar gets our obedience? Be subject in everything to the government? Well, it seems to me we need to remember that while Paul has said we honor God by honoring Caesar, that at the same time, we always maintain our obedience to government within the context of a larger obedience to God. That God always wins if those two come into conflict. Let me show you that in Acts chapter 5. Let's turn over to Acts 5. This is sort of the classic example of a, a clash between government and God's expectations. In Acts 5, what has happened is that the apostles have been preaching about Jesus and it has made the rulers, the Sanhedrin council, who was sort of in charge of Jewish life at this time, it has made them uncomfortable. And so they have threatened the apostles, don't preach anymore in this name. And then they find out, sure enough, they are preaching more about Jesus. Acts 5 and verse 27, And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. Do you hear the rationale? We disobeyed your order for this reason. We must obey God rather than men. Now, that is not just a statement about we're not going to do what you say. Remember, we've already touched on how Christians have a posture of obedience to government. This is about you told us and threatened us. You stopped doing something that God wanted us to do, and we're not doing it. Because if those things conflict, we're going to obey God rather than men. So God comes first because God has our primary allegiance. And we could just pull out a host of passages about this, seeking first the kingdom of God. And we could talk about how Jesus calls men. One of them wants to go back and tell his, his parents goodbye. And he says, no, you've got to seek the kingdom first. You've got to follow me first. You don't do other things first. And we could go on and on about that. But I think the principle is pretty clear. Let me say this, though. This is my observation. While this is true, it seems to me, and we are blessed in this, that conflict between what God says and what government calls on us to do is extraordinarily rare. It is very rare. And that's not something that we are itching to make it into a conflict so that we can thumb our nose at the government and say, I don't have to do what you say. It is instead something that the apostles say, look, we, we have to do what Jesus told us to do because we've got to obey God rather than men. And we are blessed in this country that those conflicts are few and far between. But I do believe that this idea of allegiance to God foremost is what is particularly in the background of the book of Revelation, where very often in that context, it seems that Christians were forced to choose between bowing the knee to Caesar as a God, making offerings to Caesar as a God, and the expectation of God saying, you don't serve anyone but me. God is due our allegiance. Mind, soul, heart, strength. God is also due our faith. Our faith. This is a, a delicate point. But I want to remind you of how very often Israel struggled with the idea of putting faith in man over God. And that often that involves the political realm. So a few passages here. This is Psalm 118, verse 8. 
It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. Isn't it interesting how that second phrase helps clarify? Yes, we all know, don't, don't trust men. You know, men will let you down. Men will disappoint you. Men don't always do what they say. But, but this idea to trust in princes takes it into the political realm. That one of the ways we might do that would be to put our trust in people who are in positions of power. Well, I missed one. There it is. One, uh, Psalm 146 and verse 3. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. That focuses on the fact that government is just made up of people. When people die, all the hopes and dreams they had, all their plans for America, they die with them. And he says, if you put your trust in a man, then you will be ultimately disappointed because they can only do what a man can do. And then Isaiah 31, verse 1, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are strong, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. If you know much about the history of Israel, you know that very often God is frustrated with them because when some army comes against them or some difficulty arises, they look to allies and they look to military powers like Egypt or like Syria and they say, if they come and help us, then we'll be saved. But they don't ask God for help. And God is frustrated with them continually. That's the idea here. You're relying on your big army and your impressive friends, but you don't trust God. And usually God will make that not work. So the issue is, do we trust God? Or do we seek political power? Those are the two paths that these passages put before us. And it is interesting to me that Jesus refuses the path of political power repeatedly. When the crowd comes and tries to make him king by force in John 6, Jesus withdraws and says, nah, we're not doing that. Remember when Jesus is arrested, betrayed by Judas, and he's in the garden. Peter is there, he's got his sword. When the armies come to arrest Jesus, Peter, the other disciples, they're ready to fight. We'll die for you tonight, Jesus. They thought it was about to go down. And Jesus says, put your sword in its sheath. We're not doing that. And then when Pilate calls him in, Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight. This would be a fight. If that's what Jesus was seeking, some kind of political power to force the world into submission to him. To say, I'm going to reign, and I'm going to reign in a reign of terror. You're going to serve me or else. Then he would have done things very differently. Now, if that is true, it's astonishing to me that Christians still fall for this. We still fall for the idea that political power is somehow the answer. And if we just had political power, then we could solve all the world's problems. Even though we know, you know, the kingdom is like a, a leaven, a little bit of leaven that spreads quietly, slowly, or a mustard seed that starts as a small thing. We just think, you know, this one time, if we could just get the right guy in power and we could do it top down, boy, we could really change some things. Boy, this one time we could really make it happen. And we put our faith in a man and then inevitably we are let down when a man is just a man and political power is not the solution to the problems of the spirit and the heart. Remember, if we think that any election stands between the kingdom shrinking or growing 
We're trusting in men. We're thinking that men and their decisions are what really makes God's work go or not go. I want you to go with me over to the book of Revelation, chapter 13. I alluded to this earlier, but I want to say this more specifically with regard to the idea of faith. Revelation 13. It is one of the features of some biblical literature, like the book of Daniel particularly, that nations are sometimes pictured as horrific beasts. And that is to say that nations, while they do have the good side that we read about in Romans 13, you know, checking evil and helping establish peace for people, sometimes they can become monsters. And there is a terrifying side to the incredible power that men can collect through political action. Romans 13 and verse 1. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, its feet were like a bear's, its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to the dragon it gave his, and to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshiped the dragon, for he had given this authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? So I believe that uh, Revelation is describing the rise of Rome and how Rome becomes this kind of empire. But you might disagree with that. I think it works for just about any nation that becomes very powerful. The idea is there comes a moment where people become so impressed with the power of a nation that they begin to bow before it. And the words here are worship. They worship the beast in verse 4. And they worship the authority of the beast. And they say, who is like the beast? Who can defeat the beast? And so they give the allegiance and the faith that God deserves and they give it to Caesar. And so the things that are God's do instead go here. And they try to pressure God's people into doing the same. That God's people would begin to worship and praise and trust and follow the government over God. They deify God. And what the book of Revelation warns us about that is God's people don't bow to government. Government is not our God. God's people don't allow government to have some kind of uncritical power over us where we can't say anything about the good and the bad of what's happening in our nation where we are afraid to stand up for what God has told us to do and to be, where we are steamrolled and it's our own choice. Now, I am not saying that America is strictly in a position of being the beast of Revelation 13 or something like that. I am saying if that is God's concern, it should be our concern that we not hold the government in the same faith and confidence, and trust, and position as God. So I hope you see what Jesus has done in this statement. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's, is he puts all the duties that we have to the government clearly in their place, but says they are secondary to God and what is due to God. So don't allow questions like these, whether it's your neighbor's dueling signs, 
or whether it's, should I pay the tax money? What is somebody going to think? What's going to happen with the Supreme Court? Don't let these things distract you from this thing. To render to God the things that are God's. So I want to give you a few parting applications and kind of take home thoughts that I hope will be a blessing and a help to you in the time that we're living in. The first is this. Keep politics in perspective. If I were able to summarize Jesus' statement, that would be the summary. Keep politics in perspective. It's interesting to me that every four years, I hear people talk about how this is the most important election in history. Every four years, over and over and over and over again. And I don't know if we're just always increasing in importance. It just seems to me we always get wrapped up in it. And then when, we, when our side wins, we're absolutely insufferable. And when our side loses, we're absolutely inconsolable. We can do better than that. Remember, Scripture describes the way people change. Scripture describes the way real change happens is not through politics. It's through the power of God's Word changing hearts, just like it's changed yours, and slowly from the inside out, from the bottom up, creating a new life and a new family and a new church and a new community and a new state and a new world. And I understand that's harder to track. You don't see those changes immediately the way you see political changes. But that is the way the gospel has always spread and done its work. Now, when we lack perspective, it means that we treat other people poorly because we always think this is the most important thing we could ever talk about. This moment is the most important moment. And it doesn't matter how I treat you because, after all, if we don't win, everything is lost. That's not the perspective of Christians. I also want to say, and this is a little bit of my commentary and opinion, and I will admit that, but I hope it will at least help to apply some of the things that I'm describing about perspective. I believe we need to be very careful about being told to view our world through political lenses instead of biblical lenses. I have been amazed in the last year that issues that have nothing to do with politics, like viruses and masks and football, are suddenly political. And it seems to me that we need to regain the perspective of people who are drinking in God's word instead of drinking in the headlines. To keep those things in perspective and to say, you know, in a few years, this will look entirely different. But what about my relationship with God and the way I'm treating people now? When we lose perspective, we not only begin to treat people poorly, we get too invested and we get incredibly disappointed or incredibly euphoric over things that have nothing to do with what we actually read in Scripture. And that concerns me because that means something is out of perspective. Second, beware of distraction. This has kind of been a distracting year. I don't know if you've noticed. Um, a lot's been going on. It seems to me that sometimes all the yelling and all the people saying so many things can distract us from our true purpose. So let me remind you 
that our purpose is to grow into the image of the Son of God. That's your job. That's your goal. To walk in the works that God created beforehand for us to walk in because we are his workmanship. And that if we get distracted from that because of something that's happening, if we're reading more about those things and focusing more on those things than we are on what God is doing in our hearts and lives, then we are distracted. Beware of distraction. Don't forget to submit and to honor our government. Now, what I mean by that specifically is we may like them or we may not, but we can submit and honor them. So whoever wins and wherever you're happy or sad about this election, this doesn't change. So don't forget it. Pray for our rulers. Uh, especially, I want to say, it's easier to find fault with our rulers. That's kind of an a American pastime. We sit around and talk about whoever it is. You know what? I don't like that. I don't like that. I don't like what he did here. Instead, Scripture calls on us to pray. Really, the finding fault is not super productive. It's not super helpful. It's not good for our hearts. And it doesn't really change anything. It's better to pray because prayer does change things. And lastly, trust God. Trust God. I, I want to say this. I understand the anxiety that produces this kind of political intensity. I get it. And I understand that we're concerned about the direction of our country. And I understand that when we see sin growing and increasing and being approved of, it is disturbing. I get it. I understand the idea that I want a better world for my kids, not a worse world. I get it. I understand. And it might be that some ways that we vote or have political action do contribute to that. And if so, that's great. Go vote and make the change you can make. But I just have to pull back and say, we need to remember what Daniel learned, that the most high rules in the kingdoms of men, that times are going to come and go, that things are going to go back and forth in our political system the way they always have, and that God is going to accomplish his will when he is ready in the ways that he is ready. And I want to remind you, that the way that looks and the way that has always looked, whether it's Daniel's time or the time of New Testament Christians or any time in between, it has always looked like the world is falling to pieces and God's not on the job. That's the, always the way it, it feels. Don't you feel that way sometimes? Everything's falling to pieces and, and God's not on the job. Where is God? Remember, this is the time, this is the call of Scripture to trust. God deserves your faith. Let's trust him. Would you pray with me about that? Our God and Father, we thank you so much for giving us your word to be a guide to us. Uh, Father, we are thinking about this time of uh, transition and difficulty in our country and a time of turmoil and a polarized time. And it's disturbing to us and upsetting to us. You see that and you know that. And Father, we want to know what we should be doing and how we should be feeling. And we thank you for showing us and reminding us. Help us, Father, to retain that perspective. Father, we pray for our country. We pray for our leaders. We ask that you'll give them wisdom to know the best way to lead, to handle the difficulties and the burdens of leadership. We thank you, Father, for giving us leaders. We thank you, Father, for allowing us to live in a place where we are free. And also, Father, for allowing us to have rulers that will punish those who do evil. Father, I pray that you will continue to be with them so that they can make wise choices and so that we can live a quiet and peaceful life in godliness and dignity. 
Father, we pray for your people as we struggle to know the best way, not only how to vote, but how to think about how to process what we are experiencing. And we pray for your peace, Father. We pray for the courage to trust you when things don't look the way we, we think they should. And Father, we pray that you'll help us to learn that you are in control. Father, we pray that you'll bless our nation. And we pray for the future of our nation, that it will continue to be a place where we can serve you freely and our children can serve you freely. But if not, Father, we pray for the courage to continue to serving you no matter what. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. There might be someone here this morning who is ready to be a follower of Jesus. We've talked some about how disciples of Jesus think about something as, as broad as politics and government. But the important issue that Jesus calls on each one of us to look at is not out there, it's in the mirror. It's about the things that we've done and the hope that we have or don't have for when this life is over. And the Bible teaches us that we are all guilty of sin, and because of that sin, we deserve punishment, we deserve eternal death. But Jesus has come and offered himself as a sacrifice to take that punishment away and to give us hope of eternal life. And if you believe in Jesus and you're ready to turn away from your sins and to be a disciple of Jesus by being baptized into Christ, we'd love nothing more than to help you do that this morning. We're going to sing a song and encourage you to come. And if you have any need, we ask you to come to the front right now as we stand and sing.